Welcome to the Schizophrenic Reads podcast. I'm the host, Nathan Shurek, also known as Schizophrenic Reads Online. Today, we're going to be talking about White Evangelical Racism by Anthea Butler, and we'll be talking to Dr. Hannah Evans. Hannah Evans holds a PhD in sociology with a focus on race and religion at Baylor University. She is currently a postdoctoral fellow with the Hartford Institute for Religious Research, and she lives with her spouse and two-year-old daughter in Hartford, Connecticut. Hannah, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I'm very excited to talk about this book. Oh, I I think we're going to have a slightly unhinged hour here, and uh, hopefully the people will enjoy it. I think we're going to enjoy it. It'll be cathartic for us, so viewers be warned, I think. Hannah, we kind of know each other in some way. We went to the same college. However, if I'm correct, we never met. We did not overlap. I don't think we overlapped. So I was there from 2013 to 2017. Okay. And I was there from 11 to 15. Okay. So we would have been there on generally on the same campus, but we weren't, I don't think in the same like major program or anything. No. What was your major in college? So my major was professional writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And then I had two minors, political science and sociology. Wow. I can vividly picture how that would have gone for you. I started as a professional writing major and then switched to, I had a major in history and a major in philosophy. So we took a lot of like the similar things. Yep. And also the way that we did college was mostly just reading books, which is the way that is College the way be. that I wanted it to be. Yeah, exactly. That's how I came up with like deciding to be a history major. I was like, I just want to read. Like, I yes. don't really care for other things. Like, just give totally. me, give me all the books. And some of those books were really great. Like, I took History of the Modern Civil Rights Movement, which would have been fall 2014. So you with Dr. Still been, yeah. An yep. incredible class changed my life, put me on the track to be reading Anthea Butler now. Um, and he was phenomenal. I mean, what a gem of a human being and great teacher. One of like the kind of only good history professors while I was there. I mean, like the other professors, <laughs> like they had, their, <laughs> they had their good things, but uh, Dr. Messer was, was awesome. Phenomenal. And, and like one of the reasons why I stayed as a history major, because yeah. I switched my major like, you know, six or seven times, as you do. Um, yeah. The number of times he graciously allowed me to follow him to his office after class to just pepper him with more questions after (laughs) I was, I think I would have described like my 19 year old self as like insatiably curious, which is a great quality, but kind of probably annoying with the student to some extent, like wonderful, but also like, oh my God, can you let other people ask questions in class? Yeah, I was I was kind of like that as well, but uh, probably more antisocial than you. So like my insatiability was just like, I just went and bought books. And then just like, I one of my things in college was like, I would just uh, stay up all night long reading and not for like a, a class or anything. It was just like, I just didn't want people around. And so yeah. living in my little dorm, I would just like sit and like stay up till it's, like four or five in the morning doing It's so hard nothing. to be an introvert in a dorm. Yeah. I... <laughs> I don't want to get too far off track, but I have vivid memories of, I'm saying this on a public, so I'm owning it now, faking being sick during Silent Night so that I did not have to go. I went, I think I went my freshman year and that was the only year I went. And the last three years I was just like, sorry, I'm busy or I don't feel good. And then you get the whole, I lived in English the last two years. So you're getting the whole floor to yourself, like (laughs) indescribably good feeling. (laughs) 
yeah. <laughs> unmatchable to know you're the only one on an entire floor of people. My whole thing was anytime the weather was like even relatively nice, I would, I had a pop-up chair in the trunk of my car, like a camping chair, and oh, I yeah. would take it out to the woods and like Hell read. Yeah. And I also, sm- I was also a smoker in college. So I would just like go out to the woods, like just me and my chain smoking cigarettes and <laughs> beer and a book and that was just like what i did you were way cooler than me which was like not like all of those things against the rule like you you can't do any of those things so um. yeah i um did not realize that there are people on campus who drank until i was a senior (laughs) i was like wait you've all been partying without me this whole time (laughs) i this is true i I was so like yeah. I got in trouble for drinking welcome weekend of freshman year with upperclassmen. Good for you. <laughs> yeah. But like when I got to college, I, I met a bunch of like juniors and seniors and they were like, hey, like, where did you transfer from? I'm like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a freshman. I just like got out of high school. And they were like, mm, I don't know about that. And so they're like, why don't you come to this party with us? Like, you seem really chill. And I was like, all right. Like, that's cool. Wow. So we no went. one has ever described me as really chill a day in my life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But that's think, very cool. Yeah. So it was a good, good college experience, except for being a bad college experience. So we <laughs> both went to an evangelical school called Taylor University, which, uh, you know, how would how would you describe Taylor University? Oh, Lord. Um, so for people who are familiar with evangelical bubbles, I would often like describe it as the Wheaton College for people who live too close to go to Wheaton. Um, but if you're not familiar with Wheaton, I guess I would describe it as like if you wanted to move to a cornfield and like work on a commune and also go to college, but then without any of the cool parts of being in a commune. <laughs> so no redistribution of labor or money, um, but you do have to live in the middle of nowhere and yeah. um and also hear weird things about sex for four years. Yeah, I, I honestly, I think we like if if we get a chance, I'm gonna have to bring you back onto the podcast just to do a purity culture. Oh yeah, episode. Um, oh yeah, it might not even just be a book. It might just be like rants about and our I have interactions so with many purity stories. culture. Oh my god, it's just like kind of endless. Yeah, Taylor was a really weird place. I, I think for people like outside of the Christian evangelical bubble. It's hard to really even comprehend like how how much of a bubble these places are. It was are. so insulated. And I think I think some of that about Taylor was compounded by the geography. So when I meet people who went to like Moody Bible Institute, it's also very insular, but because it's set in Chicago, yeah. there's a lot more at least engagement and awareness, I think, of the larger culture and and your place within it. Um, but because Taylor is rural Indiana. And then there's not a Walmart for like 25 minutes. <laughs> and that's the social gathering. <laughs> you go to a Steak and Shake or Walmart, which are both like far away, or you walk to the gas station, which is the only thing really within walkable distance. It's the, yeah, it's the only thing walkable. Um, we it's did have very this, insulated. We had this series called uh, Sex and the Cornfields. And it was, it was talking about like purity culture, but also just like sexuality in general. I'm saying this broadly because I went to one chapel while I was a Taylor student. So, like, I don't actually have, like, super direct references <laughs> for these I tried so things. much harder to follow the rules. Yeah, yeah. No, but I still gave up. I, I was very much a rule follower at heart. Um, but I still gave up, I would say, like, 
in my second year. So the first year I really like did the Taylor thing and then went, this is really not for me. Peace out. Like, <laughs> No, I, I told everyone I was an atheist opening like first okay. weekend freshman year. So, so what it was like brought from you the to start. Taylor? It was a whole like, you know, parents okay. helping out with like college tuition and, and they just basically made the rule that it was like, you, you have to. You have to go to a Christian school. Like that okay. was kind of the whole stipulation. And weirdly enough, Taylor was the most liberal of it all is. the Christian schools that so they that's were like another, allowing. That's another really interesting thing about Taylor is that for a Christian school, Taylor is um, pretty moderate or it was. So it was. Yeah. I don't know if I would describe it that way now, but in like 2011, 2012, 2013, when you and I started, um, it was pretty well known for being a place where like more progressive Christian mm-hmm. faculty were teaching and pretty openly. Like I had a, I had a professor like my first week of class say he didn't believe in hell and that mm-hmm. like really blew my mind. It was so meaningful for me. Shout out to Jeff Kramer. And uh, I also had a biology professor who taught about evolution. Mm -hmm. And these were like fairly open things that you were allowed to like engage about. I don't know if it's still that way now, but it was very, I think, a really unique place in terms of conservative Christianity being like a more moderate lean on that. Um, And I went to a Christian school because um, I really wanted to. My parents did not make (laughs) us, but I was fully in on like the party scene of public schools scared me. And I wanted to be at a place where I thought everybody would just like hang out and like watch movies and talk about interesting things but then when i tried to bring up politics <laughs> on my all-female floor my down. second week of school people looked at me like i had three heads yeah they were like what the hell are you talking about yeah it was very weird i actually have to i have to admit this to you the first time i ever learned who you were was after i had graduated and someone made reference to you uh, and, and 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 it was like you were in some class and you brought up like I don't know, broadly some social justice issue. And you were like, you went on about it during the class. And they were like, I can't believe she would say those things in class. <laughs> and I was like, I have to look this person up. And so that's how I started following oh your Twitter. God. Is because like, then I saw like, you knew a bunch of the like, uh, uh, kind of our mutual friends and stuff. Yeah. And I was like, okay, like actually a Taylor student that like, thinks critically about things. Because so much of the kind of, and this will lead into the book, but so much of the bubble of Taylor University, but also just these larger Christian institutions is just, I think, kind of an uncritical analysis for like most things. Yeah, It is very doctrinal and dogmatic. Like there's just, you kind of go with what your pastor tells you and then that's, that's kind of it. And for the most part, Taylor was a place where I think free thinking or whatever was kind of allowed, but at the same sense, it was still all bottlenecked through like the same lessons that we all learned. Like, so there really wasn't like a plethora of diverse opinions or viewpoints or anything like that. It was mostly the same ones, but we were just allowed to talk about them with a little bit more freedom than a lot of the other colleges that we definitely chose not to go to (laughs) for that exact reason. (laughs) I was definitely one of like one or two slightly more progressive people in like 80% of my classes. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't really until my final year that I was in class with like a couple other people who were my friends who we were all in class together and like had, we had all kind of influenced each other to the more progressive agenda. (laughs) Um, And those classes were like a full on battlefield, a couple of them. I mean, um, 
definitely the environment, the longer that the more that people like knew who I was, which again is a very complicated thing. I have complicated feelings about Taylor traumatized me a little bit in terms of like notoriety, like there was more animosity coming from other students. The longer that I like went to Taylor and people knew who I was and I wrote in the echo and like, well, you there, you were there in 20, you said you graduated in 17, right? Yeah. So I was there So you were the there election. for like the, the, the early part Trump years. Cause I, yeah. I graduated, I guess it would have been like right before Trump, before like, the announcement. Yeah. So I, I had no interaction with like that version of uh, Taylor or, or, or Christianity, I guess, in some sense. And yeah. by like 2016, you know, with Trump running, I was out in like the real world, which is like a huge departure from those circles and already not being a believer from high school. I just kind of like lost track of of a lot of the happenings there. And I can't imagine I, I don't know if I would have finished college if I would have been there for like another two years or something. Like if I would have been there the the time period that you were, I like I probably would have just dropped out. <laughs> like it was you as really a senior tense. just been like, nope, I'm done. Like it was really tense. I and uh, I definitely had a few moments my senior year where I was like, I'm not gonna make it. <laughs> like I had a full on like mental breakdown my spring semester of my senior year. Um, because I was just so burnt out. You know, I, I was just talking with, um, a faculty member who's, who was a longtime mentor of mine. and was a mentor to me while I was a student at Taylor. And she was telling me like, she was like, if I think about how much like free labor students did for the university during Mm -hmm. my time there, like you didn't get paid nearly enough for like how much you did for them. I mean, because I was experiencing this dichotomy of people sort of, um, Public, so faculty and staff public facing being like, don't be a loose cannon, blah, 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 which is an insane thing to say to me if people know me at all. <laughs> like, I'm the, I'm not a loose cannon. I'm a lot of things. I can ramble. I'm opinionated, yada, yada, but I am not a loose cannon. <laughs> You'll see it coming a mile away, like extremely predictable behavior. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, but then behind the scenes, they would email me and they would message me on Facebook and go, can you help me do my job? <laughs> like I spoke to one Dean um, who the like the day after or the day before the election was like, we're going to host this like forum listening session after the election. Can you tell me how to run it basically? And I was, I remember at the time thinking I'm not even going to get the credit of like being the one to run it, but like, I'm going to tell him how to run it so that he can run it and then get all the accolades for like doing a good job. And that was just such a tale of, that's such a great insulation of the like second half of my time at Taylor in a nutshell, like faculty and private going, I support you. It's great that you're doing this. Can you help me do it? like do this with my students and then in public being like yeah that hannah schaefer like she's a (laughs) she's a liberal she has opinions (laughs) and thoughts on things and she's a woman and you're like well great Uh this is yeah yeah absolutely so it was um it was a pretty unhinged four years and i have (laughs) i have more stories um that we can certainly get into later but it was it was pretty um I would say pretty traumatizing, especially since, and this is actually kind of transitioning into the topic of the book, I kind of did the progressive thing a little bit differently than most people at Taylor did. I went race first, then sexuality after. 
So I was, I came to Taylor being like, yeah, I'm kind of a feminist. I would like name that and claim that more the like Sarah Bessie Christian feminist type thing. But like, so like not that feminist, but like, but like I would, if he, somebody asked me if I was a feminist, I'd say, yeah, which is like more than most 18 year olds that Taylor would say. Oh, for sure. So, but for me, the first big thing was race because the summer after my first year at Taylor was when the Ferguson protests broke out in Missouri. And I was sort of like on Twitter at that point in my life. I'd probably just started and like on Twitter, like 2012. And I was like, oh, there's a lot of people talking about their experiences with the police. And I had this really, for me, really pivotal moment, which was like, I can either call myself a Christian and care about people and their experiences and validate them because their experiences are inherently valid, or I have to like forego the title of Christian from now on because like, because this is what it means to me to like to believe in all the like Christian stuff that I'd been taught my entire life, um, which is hilarious because a lot of other Christians did not take that same message. But for mm-hmm. me, that was what being Christian meant was like, it means listening to the experiences of others and giving them value because other people are worthy of love and respect. And if they're saying they're not respected, then I have to believe them. I'm not an expert on their experience. And that was a really pivotal moment for me. So that fall was when I took Dr. Messer's History of the Modern Civil Rights Movement class and learned all about the civil rights movement. And he did such a great job of drawing parallels between the civil rights movement of the past and what was going on with Black Lives Matter in the present. And that was really formative for me. And then I attended a Black Lives Matter protest in Indianapolis at the end of that semester the day of Silent Night. Mm. And there was a protest happening at Silent Night at the same time uh, where people were going to hold up signs saying Black Lives Matter at Silent Night. And I had been on the fence about whether or not I was going to join them. And I remember being with a friend, Zach Taylor. I don't know if you knew who he was. So so he and I were good friends. And we were at the Black Lives Matter protest in Indy together. And I remember us looking at each other and going like, we need to we need to be a part of these conversations in our community. Yeah. Like not just leaving to do it, but staying to do it. And that that is part of doing the work is to stay and show up in the community that we were already in. And that was also a real like light switch moment for me. And I don't think things were the same after that. Like so I came back and went to Silent Night, so I guess I went 2 years. I went to Silent Night to go to the to do the protest specifically. And that kind of triggered like a series of events after that that involved going to a panel about why they chose to do the event and having people like be mad at them and me being like, that's interesting. Why are people so angry? I mean, it's controversial, but it's also not like a real radical statement to say that Black Lives Matter. It should be a very biblical <laughs> statement. And I walked into Felicia Case's office probably like a week later and was like, I know that I am just a random white student that you do not know, but I want to be a part of the solution at Taylor. And so whatever you can't do within your bandwidth as black staff member, she's the only, was like one of the only black women on staff at the time, her and Kathy Weatherspoon. And I was like, whatever you can't do or don't have the like credibility or whatever in the eyes of other people to do, like, let me do it. And like, like I will, whatever, in what, whatever way I can leverage being both a student and also a white person, like I will do to help. Mm. And so she did not have to believe me. I probably would not have <laughs> believed me, but she did. She was like, okay, like if you mean it, like, let's, 
let's do it. Like, let's talk to people and do some stuff. And so that's kind of like how it all started. And um, I just started making like every class presentation about race. I brought it up in class like as much as I could all on purpose like with the intent of moving the dotted like the moving the little dotted line on what it means to like talk about these issues at Taylor with very mixed results (laughs) oh yeah absolutely and that's kind of the thing is uh, what is I think kind of a complex issue of both the book and also like the circles that we found ourselves in for growing up and all of that was Anthea Butler in the book kind of skates over the like definition of evangelical, like kind of gives like some broad talking points, but like overall, it's kind of almost an amorphous group of people. And that certainly uh, does include people of all races, but is largely a white and politically right institution that is also kind of not an institution at the same time. And I think like the way in which that exists is in, in like a, Uh, an environment like Taylor, but also just environments all over the place is it's not always cookie cutter, but at the same time, it is just, they are all uniformly the same. Like, so they all have like little unique, distinct differences. And these are regionally differences. These are doctrinal differences, you know, all of these types of things, but it all kind of cohesively exists as this broadly, I mean, historically racist and modern day, subsumed or completely consumed by like the concept of culture war and the 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 term for culture war has changed over time but like since the 1990s the i think the purpose of the evangelical church and uh anthea butler gets into this but the the purpose of the church isn't even like to be evangelical anymore it's not even to like minister outside of it it's to like spur people into like political fervor it's 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 so much more of a political institution then it really has much to do with religious institutions and growing up in a private christian school like pre-k through 12 that really shone through the the fact that my bible class was often a politics class and like there are awesome ways in which religion and politics can mesh together but when you grow up in these evangelical circles uh you figure out very quickly how much of it is there's not room for questioning things. There's not room for like open discussions and to, to think critically about issues. I think before we get into like the nitty gritty of the story, I am just kind of curious, what's your overall reading experience with this book? Like I'm, I'm 100% positive you enjoy this book and you like this book and you find it valuable and all those things. So it's just like, what was what is reading it like for you? Because I'm guessing you've read it at least once, probably. Yeah. So this is... I actually love the ask this question because I have a lot of thoughts about this. I read this book during the time when there was kind of a growing, and there still is, a growing like ballooning of this particular niche genre of people writing books about white evangelicals being racist, mm. but they're doing it in a number of different ways. So you've got the Robert P. Jones, like end of Christian America, but he's been kind of, he's the head of PRI and had been doing some stuff like on this topic. And you've also got this growing discussion of like Christian nationalism, which mm-hmm. I can rant about if you'd yeah, like, sure, but yeah, yeah. that's another topic. Um, it's connected, but they're different. Um, and so you've got like a growing sort of niche, but a lot of those books are written by white men, which is, it's fine. Like, I don't think that means that they can't write about it, but I've noticed that a lot of those books tend to give a sort of like they're very generous. 
Yeah, a, a bit generous or just like exercising their own white guilt in a way. Mm. Like I read I read End of Christian America and at the time I remember thinking like he's just trying to like make up for being raised like a Baptist, like a white man Baptist, which is fine. But I just felt it lacked a certain like incisiveness, which is the exactly the word I would use to describe this book. Like it's so clear. It's so to the point. It's like a tight God, it's it's under 200 pages. It's like a it's a tight 150 pages. And I just think this cuz she cuts like all the filler bullshit and gets like straight to the heart of every single. It doesn't feel rushed. It no. just feels direct. No. She's very like, let's just get right to the heart of it. This is why this happened and this is fucked up. <laughs> to me it's one of like, the it's one of the books on like the I think the modern Christian period, but also I mean it is history as well, but I think what I enjoy so much about it is you don't need to be from a religious background to like really fully grasp the concept of this book. And also, I don't think it was written for an audience of just people that are evangelical or that are ex-evangelical. Like it it speaks to just like a broader culture that can understand this book and process this book and sit with it, where a lot of the books in this kind of same field or same genre of kind of, uh, I, I would say, just generally questioning mainline Christianity and not always evangelical, but just in the broad sense of that. Um, so many of them feel like they're still written for the in crowd. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> there's so much like language and uh, I think direct and indirect references to really niche topics that people broadly don't know. So this book I think is just a phenomenal reading experience. Like you said, it's like 150 pages. I think the audiobook is like three hours and 15 minutes and you put that on two X speed, you're done. And you're like, it's a podcast (laughs) length of a book. Yeah. And uh, it's incredibly fascinating. I think you spoke to one of the things I really liked about it, which is that a lot of these books are still trying to get white evangelicals to change their minds. So I feel like a lot of those other books are still writing to a white evangelical, still trying to be like, Maybe if they just read one more book, maybe if they just hear it put this way, then their then their minds will be their eyes will be opened and they will realize the error of their ways. And so a lot of them are kind of doing this like tiptoeing around or very delicate touching on some of these issues. And Anthea's just like, I don't care. <laughs> She's just like, I, I'm gonna give it to you exactly how it is. And if you can't handle that, then this book's not for you, which I think is great. I personally find that level of honesty really refreshing. It's a, like, um, not not that those other books are dishonest, but I just feel like they're um, coddling a little more yeah, than I felt like this book is, which I which I like. This book is a force of dispassionate passion, of just kind of like a like willful ambivalence toward the audience, uh, not the like the reading audience, but like the the subject audience. Uh, which I find just so fascinating and uh, really good. But yeah, I I think it's, I mean, it's called white evangelical racism, but I think like one of the things the book sets up is that racism as it kind of exists, like within the history of the evangelical movement. And there's so many little offshoots of that that we could go into, but it, it's just basically that was the starting point for, I think the, the larger culture war of, of evangelicalism and then it has just led into a myriad of different identities and and so like the forcefulness in which evangelical racism started kind of in the 1950s has just now been used to harm every other group as well Um, (laughs) and so and and i think part of the part of the background of the 
the origins of white evangelical racism certainly like date back to slavery, but the author is not totally concerned with like older history. It happens to do a lot more yeah. with post-war America. And I think, cause this is truly like the, this is the history that we are like constantly living through and like the remnants of it are still present in today's society. And the racism that exi- is exhibited by evangelical circles of that time period was also directed at communists. It was directed at labor. It was directed at in, in forms of ableism and and every kind of little other marginalized identity. Yeah, they opposed the ADA, which is so wild. <laughs> yeah. I think that evangelicalism has always been defined by needing to be opposed to something else, exactly. which is how you get, which is, it's funny, it's funny you bring up the culture wars because the guy who wrote that book was one of my professors at Baylor mm. in, in grad school. Um, so I've talked about that quite a bit with him and, and uh, his thoughts on that now. But like the definition of evangelical was to be a part of the culture and to have a voice and a say in the culture, which... I guess to them, like fundamentally meant taking stances against stuff um, because a lot of a lot of the early like 1950s era evangelicalism is like anti-Catholic, anti-Semitic, you know, ableist, like you described. Um, and that's like the a huge part of how they're defining what it means to be evangelical, as well as, of course, like racism. And, you know, you've got you've always got your like cute little stories about Billy Graham. But for the most part, Billy Graham was like not doing anything meaningful to like combat racism other than just shaking hands with a black man. And people are like, Oh, good for him. Like well, and how just like completely pithy any racial yeah. like progress was made during the era was, I mean, the most mundane surface level type things. I mean, it was like in other books I have learned so much about, and I only say other books it's just simply because Butler's book is so concise and there's so many kind of other books on this general topic. But I mean, how racism like the the church basically gave itself a big pat on the back because it it didn't intentionally like willfully segregate its churches. It just happened naturally. And they were like, look how good like we don't kick black people out of churches. And you're like, what? Like this is right. You are a shining example of like good Christian faith because of this. Right. It's just. It's a wild thing to read about, I think, because of living in like these circles that we did is both like there is no part of this book that is unbelievable. And it's still because of where we are politically and like in our progress in life, it is still also completely unbelievable. Like the, the <laughs> fact that like this is still. Um, yeah. Like the church still exists in this way today. And it's just it's just yeah. morphed, you know, only slightly. I think that's one of my biggest takeaways from this book is that evangelicals have actually always been this way. Mm-hmm. I think there's so much um, contemporary, like moderate discourse, like the the more moderate evangelicals, like, God, I don't know, Andy Crouch and Rick Warren, who are like, oh, things have gotten like so bad. Oh, no, like, they, like we're better than this type of stuff. But are you really better than this? Because like, are you just more aware of the problems now? Because this is baked in at the core, like to, to be evangelical, even the most, the things we consider most foundational to being evangelical, like being pro-life and things like that were founded, like evangelicals were pro-choice until Catholics were pro-life or were 
pro-life and then they were like we are going to join with the Catholics to be pro-life in order to work against these other groups. Like we're going to increase the number of people in our majority by by accepting people who are Catholic in order to oppose, um, you know, black people mm-hmm. and these other groups who are who are more open to being pro-choice. And and originally, evangelicals were pro-choice because Catholics were pro-life, and they were trying to separate themselves from Catholics as being like different from them because of the anti-Catholic like anti-Catholic sentiment at the time. Absolutely, and that's kind of like the wild thing is like we still see kind of whatever whatever kind of position politically that you think like is wild that evangelicals are in today. Like just just know that it's it's historically significant or consistent. Uh, I mean, something like the the racism that existed at an institution, I'm sure you've heard this before, but like Bob Jones University did not allow uh, interracial marriages until... So, 1994. 1994. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just, <laughs> it's crazy. It yeah, it, it's wild. It didn't stop, and it hasn't stopped, too, which is also kind of something this book is talking about in, in kind of direct ways, but mostly in kind of the illusions of like... Yeah, maybe the overtness of racism has slightly taken a backseat, but to like the wider cultural hegemony that the church is looking for, like the culture war that exists, it's kind of like in the same way that they talk about like in politics is like you can't say overt racist things, but you can dog whistle all you want. And like, that's totally fine. Like, we know what you're saying. Isn't there a quote almost exactly like that from like Barry Goldwater or something that I'm thinking of that he basically says that exact thing. Like, There's a quote that we literally cannot say on this podcast, but yes, it is (laughs) exactly that. Because it's so graphic. But his basic sentiment is exactly that. Like, you can't be overtly racist, but you can make all these like dog whistles, Mm -hmm. you know, that that then will like people will follow on the premise of them ultimately being racist. And I think that that's what is, I think is kind of this brainwash mentality is that it's so consuming. And so even if, even if someone is not part of an evangelical church or is not part of like an evangelical school system, like we were like the kind of the purpose of the evangelical movement is to be its own counterculture in some way is is to it it makes its own media its own kids shows its own movies that go to theaters that bus loads of church folks go go watch these movies and it's a fascinating thing that how completely culturally relevant the church is but how also completely culturally irrelevant the churches at the same time because like the wider cultural audience we're not telling evangelical stories in a lot of major media and when it is it's mostly pretty negative things like we had with the um the church movement that they made the i was it the hulu documentary series about the um they're like oh hillsong hillsong the hill did you watch yeah, the hillsong documentary yeah. <laughs> god i try really hard to like not watch things i know are gonna make me mad <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, but I'm extremely familiar with Hillsong, so I can probably connect the dots. But yeah, Hillsong is a perfect example of like the 2010 to 2015 era of Christianity mm-hmm. where and this was true in the in the 2000s to the early 2000s, which was that like being hip and like performing a certain type of like 
class identity and racial identity as well without like through the way you dress and like the references you make as well as the kind of worship music you use is intended for a white audience in a way that is sort of exclusionary inadvertently. There's a really great book, a great sociology book by Corey Edwards, phenomenal sociologist. Um, She is a black female sociologist who studies multiracial congregations. And she has this book called The Elusive Dream, which is basically how in the in the late 90s, um, when we had Michael Emerson's book, Divided by Faith, which I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's very famous, basically talking about segregation in the church and how he argued at the time that the solution was more multiracial churches. Mm. And so she wrote this book in 2009, I think is when the first edition came out, where she essentially went to these multiracial churches and said, you know, the, the population itself is racially diverse, but the theology and the worship and the pastor is all white. It's mm-hmm. it's white it's white theological hegemony. Yeah. So they're not introducing you know liberation theology, and they're not singing gospel music, and they're not incorporating historically black ways of thinking and being around religion. They're just asking for more diverse people so that they look good, so that they can then espouse the same white supremacist theology. And so like that is this. This, I think I see it at Taylor, too, in terms of wanting diversity and even like doing basically the college version of busing in students from Chicago to get discounted uh, tuition in order to be the diversity on campus. But they're not giving them actual opportunities to learn mm. or get support or have resources. They just want them there so that when they teach and do chapel and give this white supremacist theology and values that those students then can just be there to make them feel good about doing it that way, which is a huge part of the problem. Yeah. And I think that's how diversity happens around, I mean, college campuses broadly, you know, evangelical, not evangelical. Uh, There is so much just old white dudes, you know, in charge and not relenting any type of power, but specifically in like the evangelical circles, it's, predictable. I mean, I, there, you would you would look at a, a college in Kansas, the same as California, as as Indiana, as Massachusetts, as, as they all kind of, they are functionally the same thing, that the diversity that they want is, it, that is overt. Like their, their desire to draw in students from not only just across the country, but of, of different cultures as well. I mean, these institutions purposefully seek out missionary kids from all across the world and from different cultures. And then when you get there, the ideology and the theology is then cookie cutter. There's nothing really profoundly different about what they do with a diverse student body. It's they just teach the same old, same old. And when it comes to questioning or resisting those, I think those teachings the system just doesn't really allow for it. That's just like not one thing. That's one thing that was specifically about how I left Christianity was how completely incapable my pastor, my youth pastor, my like adult pastor, my uh, my school system, they were they they could not handle questions. And it's not like they didn't give me good answers. It's like they like outright were kind of just mean to me for even yeah. asking questions. And these were like basic sixteen year old questions of like. You know, I don't know if like if God makes you suffer. Is that a good thing? And they were like, yeah, you cannot ask that. And you're like, really? Like, I feel like wow. someone's written something on this before. I feel like you could point yeah. me in a direction of like, 
maybe one theologian through history that's dealt with like the concept of pain and they were like no you need to and you need to pray like, about most this. of them have right, right. and they were like no just just pray and so wow it becomes just uniform and and that's i think what is so weird about this uh, talk about like the 2010 to 2015 version of christianity which was trying in some sense i think to like mirror or reflect culture with like your pastors now dressed cool and like your youth groups had like events that were like out in public at like laser tag facilities and stuff and so you're like trying to get these evangelical these kids out into the system and out, out into the world and then i think it, the culture just flipped they realized that didn't work and that's when kind of we have the I think the Trump movement, which I I really, I absolutely cannot blame just like Trump. Like this is not a singular like, wow, they just fell ill to like yeah. a really charismatic leader. It's like, no, like the whole system was absolutely diseased from the start. So, but really, it, it really changed to like the culture war now is so much more violently antagonistic to the sense that the dog whistles now that exist they're barely dog whistles. They're barely dog whistles. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, like, the difference. <laughs> now people are just saying it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we've had, like, a, a, a the uptick, at least in the publicity of, like, white nationalist groups. And one of the books that talks about this movement, and specifically with Trump's relationship to the white evangelical movement, is Kristen Dumais, um, Jesus and John Wayne. I, have you read this one? Yeah, I have. It's a really phenomenal, I mean, just an absolutely it's a great incredibly book. talented it's, history writer. It's kind of a perfect partner to this and similar books like it, you know, Color of Compromise mm-hmm. by Jamar Tisby. And they're kind of doing very similar things, but in like, in slightly different ways, but they're complementary. They're not definitely not in conflict with each other because her book is definitely focused on like masculinity and portrayals of masculinity, even in evangelicalism over time. And these other books are talking about race, but they really do go together. I think like you, what she's talking about in Jesus and John Wayne is a white patriarchal masculinity. And I don't think it, I don't think you get that masculinity without getting the whiteness. I mean, John Wayne is a perfect example of that because not only was he like this man's man, you know, whatever, his entire thing was like killing Indians on mm-hmm. TV. Like that was his like, like, like putting these like fake, fake indigenous people. They were rarely ever actually portrayed by like indigenous people. They were portrayed by white people in red face and then was like killing them, you know? And that was like the masculinity. So, so it's in and of itself like a white masculinity, a white colonizer masculinity pitted against an other in the same way that whiteness is doing the same thing like across men and women in, in evangelicalism broadly. But you've got, you've got this like the combination of both being white and male, which is creating like a Trump thing, yeah. <laughs> a John Wayne Trump thing. Like they're very connected in their performances of both masculinity and whiteness. That are that they go together. They're like puzzle pieces that fit because a black masculinity is going to be extremely different. I mean, that's, um, even if I mean, that's even if that it is like patriarchal, in, it can be it'll like be different from the church. Is is black masculinity? Is yeah. is there's just no allowance for that kind of thing. There was oh I can't remember. I have read something about the 1960s churches and the racism that existed. I think it's called the Bible told them so. It's about um yeah it's about post war church segregations and it's a really fascinating read it also talks about like the ableism that was involved in these early movements and 
I think like we've already kind of said it, but I think it needs reiterated is just the evangelical movement. And I think we both view it the same way is just a political class. I mean, it's. And I think that's the argument Anthea is making. Yeah. Like the, to, to me, the core of her argument is like at the very end of her introduction where she basically asks, like wrestles with these questions does being evangelical really mean being white? Does it mean that anyone who embraces evangelical beliefs has to give up parts of their culture? Does it mean that evangelicals always have to vote Republican? Um, and then she says, to be honest, I've always known the answers. Evangelicalism is synonymous with whiteness. Mm -hmm. It is not only a cultural whiteness, but also a political whiteness. The presupposition of the whiteness of evangelicalism has come to define evangelicalism. And it is the definition that the media, the general public, and politicians agree on. And that's like, to me, the core, that's like the hypothesis of her book, Yeah. Um, is that she's basically demonstrating the ways that evangelicalism is, is at its core, a white political movement and is in the intent is to uphold and maintain white supremacy in American culture through these, you know, biblical values <laughs> that get put on the Bible, but it's very implicitly um, and sometimes explicitly a white movement. Something I've been thinking a lot about with reading this book, I, I just, I read it this morning, but I also read it back in May, but um, the kind of the concept of the, what is it? I think there's a, an actual term for it, but like the mousy, just like quiet, subservient churchgoer is, is kind of like the, that is what white evangelical culture, it is not loud. It is like even the ways in which like <laughs> we consume media of like you quietly sit and like be patient and, and just like enjoy it in <laughs> silence and stuff like that is kind of this tactic I think in order to not allow for like not only a diversity of like thoughts and opinions but a diversity of reactions a diversity of like interactions within the system and this um it's just it's it's so much more pervasive in ways that like the white evangelical racism that we're talking about in this book is is often a very like foundationally political thing, but it's also in the minutia of how we like live lives and how we like sure. interact in social circles. I mean, one of the things, and I kind of want to get into it with like the the larger purity movement, uh, which is like reaching topics here. But I mean, I think one of like the foundational parts of going to a college like Taylor University is the whole MRS kind of topic. It is the whole get married, have children, have children quickly in order to have multiple children. And I think this is, no one ever would have said it, um, at least not when we were in college and probably not even still, but I mean, this quiverful idea of just like have children, have them quickly, have them young, have them within your own circle, you know, like your other students that also believe and think the same exact way. I mean, it is like this kind of progress of the ethnostate uh, and the nationalist Absolutely. ideology that you get by by going like, oh, it's just funny that they want, you know, that like conservatives want to get married and, and like have kids. It's like, no, there's a very intentional way in which like this system is trying to reproduce its own followers. And we were part of that in, in a very much not fully grasping like the role in which that that was taking place in our lives because in the way that it existed at Taylor, it was mostly just, there was an extremely serious pressure on all of us to get married to someone that like went to our college. And I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but Hannah, I would love to know 
how you have processed this this uh, particular thing. <laughs> okay, well, I have so many thoughts. So I want to go back just a second because I think this connects so well to the pro-life stuff. Mm-hmm. A huge part of the motivation of being pro-life was to was because of a declining white population yeah. in the United States. And so a big part of the concern was that if abortion was made easily accessible, that white people would continue to decline until they were no longer the majority. Yeah. And I think that's very relevant for this discussion, <laughs> as well as the like ethnostate of evangelicalism specifically, because the concern was maintaining a white majority and white hierarchy in the United States, but also um, with evangelicals getting to maintain that power. So my situation is really interesting because my parents were not raised evangelical. Oh, wow. And they did they kind of stumbled into a megachurch in the Chicago suburbs when I was in like kindergarten Mm -hmm. and because I was asking a lot of theological questions of like, I think I asked my mom, she, she loves this story. She tells me all the time. I was probably like four or five. I asked her why was Jesus a boy and not a girl? (laughs) And she was like, Oh my God, I don't know. (laughs) And so she basically like had to go on this journey of figuring out her own theological beliefs. And Mm then I think that, you know, my dad has struggled on and off for a lot of his life with untreated mental illness. And the one thing that evangelicalism offers a lot of is certainty. And, you know, he was pretty traumatized as a child by very abusive parents. And evangelicalism offered him structure and predictability and rigidity. And I, I've, I really understand and have forgiven my parents for this because like neither of them had any idea what they were getting into when they were like, yeah, let's go to this mega church and like get our kids baptized there and like go all in because they were um, looking for safety. They were looking for like emotional safety. And so I understand why they made that choice. I think it's really hard for people who come to evangelicalism in adulthood and don't really know what they're getting into. Mm. You know, my parents are both in their thirties. And so like they were They were looking for a safe place for Doug and I, my brother and I, to be a part of a community. We were were homeschooled, but not for religious reasons. Again, like we were really an anomaly. (laughs) My parents are both public school educators who decided to homeschool their children. And so just like a really bizarre kind of scenario. But yeah, so when I went to Taylor, it was my choice. My parents were not expecting me or forcing us to go to a Christian school. I mean, they certainly were happy that we were, um, but they definitely didn't weren't like pressuring us into it. They were going to, they were going to try and financially support us no matter where we went. And so I, I had just broken up with my high school boyfriend because he wanted to basically wanted to like play the field and like experience other relationships. Which again, 18 is not unreasonable. I was just pretty happy to like try and do long distance and like, make it work. He was like the youngest of a, like youngest pastor's son. And like, (laughs) but I didn't think he was going to become a pastor. I wouldn't have wanted to be a pastor's wife, but he, which is hilarious because he's actually in seminary now, (laughs) but he was who I thought I was supposed to be with. Like he was kind of the classic, like charismatic, upstanding, rule following, all of the things that you think you're supposed to have in a man that you would have to submit to, Mm -hmm. which like I was already kind of deconstructing (laughs) like my junior and senior year of high school. I had stumbled across some like Christian feminist like blogs online and was reading things and going, oh yeah, like (laughs) 
that has always bothered me. I'm really glad that somebody's like debunking like, that. Wait, like maybe I've, maybe I am a full person, you know? Like <laughs> like I always hated the like submit to your spouse's things because I saw how toxic it was with my mom and dad mm. and was like my mom should be in charge here. What is going on? Um, and so like, I had always kind of hated it. And so I was getting like support for that. And, and so when I went to Taylor, I was already working through a lot of that stuff. And I met, I met Logan my first week of freshman year. Um, he had a crush on my roommate who they had known each other through like the, the incoming graduating class Facebook groups. Oh, yeah, yeah. You remember when they used to that like is how I met start- my first college girlfriend was that exact Facebook Amazing. group. Amazing. So they met on the Facebook group. I was not very active on the Facebook group. And so they met there and we all lived in Bergwall, which is like the one one of the two co ed two or three co ed dorms mm-hmm. on campus. And so so him and his two roommates and my roommate and myself and my other roommate would hang out like all the time. And so we hung out a lot that first year. And um, we so we were good friends. And I'm like, well, he fell in love with me. <laughs> what can I say? But it was it was mostly mutual. And then we started dating like six months later. But I was definitely ambivalent like the whole time about like. I, I obviously really liked him because if I didn't, I would have definitely broken up with him because <laughs> by the time we were getting it, so we got, we did get engaged while I was still at Taylor. Not at Taylor Lake. Please don't tell me it was at Taylor no, Lake. No, no, okay. no. Thank God. Not on campus. Okay, good, oh good, good. Oh my God. I would have been mortified. I would have had to just, like, um, we got to delete this episode. I cannot no, in good I faith been sweat- let this conversation I was, go I was public. at the point where I was like borderline embarrassed to be getting <laughs> engaged at all. I was only getting engaged because like, we knew we, it was just a matter of now or later. Like yeah. we, we had, we had and still have a great relationship and like, and actually it's so funny because he and I deconstructed so much together mm-hmm. and like, and that's really impacted like how we are together. And like, definitely we both like, we both kind of like left church together and like just a very interesting dynamic but but we were doing it by the very conventional like taylor timeline and that was really embarrassing for me i had a lot of anxiety about it um which is hilarious but it was real and i felt like weird about telling people and i was afraid people wouldn't be able to be happy for me like my closest friends but yeah, so we, and then we got married the winter after graduation, mm-hmm. but I was in grad school getting a PhD. So I was like, I'm counteracting it. I'm, I'm balancing it all out. Like, yes, we got married, but he had to move here for me and I'm getting a PhD. So I'm going to be the doctor. So like in the balance of the universe, <laughs> in terms of satisfying Taylor, but not too much, like, I think, it, I think it, it was working out sort of in my it's favor. A little both but, and, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it kind of happened on that timeline, like against my will. Like, like it was the right timeline for us, but I was embarrassed that it was also like Taylor's <laughs> expected timeline. I often joke to people, this is, I'm, I can't believe I'm saying this on a public podcast, but it's funny now because it was like six years ago. <laughs> I wanted so badly to be able to say that we did not wait to have sex until we got married that we had sex for the first time like three months before we got married Wow! because I just wanted to be able to tell good, people good. that we did not wait <laughs> because I was like I'm gonna be so embarrassed if I told people that I waited to get to have sex until I got wait, married you, like I can't go sorry this I can't is maybe go out too personal. did you wait until after you graduated though 
Or did you have sex yeah. while you were in college? Uh, until after Taylor. Because oh, <laughs> in my defense, there's nowhere. I was too scared to do it and get caught. That was the main reason. Don't say there we... was nowhere. That's just like, that just shows you're not creative <laughs> well, enough. We didn't, I didn't want to be um, laying up pine needles. Okay, well, that's why you take a Taylor blanket with you out to the woods. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Um, I also like, again, Logan and I are both, um, like really afraid of breaking the rules. And so it was more about that than it was about anything else. Sure. But, um, but I can't officially say that we did not wait until we got <laughs> married because that would have just been so embarrassing. Congratulations for, for your progressive Thank life. Thank you, that you very much. Um, <laughs> you know what? I will take it. No, but in, um, I think in a very real yeah. sense, like just the fact, and this is going to, I'm going to kind of put you on the point here, but just the fact that you went to get a PhD after Taylor, which Taylor is a university. It's a college. You go there to get your degree. But I was the only I was the only girl I knew going straight to grad school, like for a PhD out of graduation. That's just not a thing that happens with I mean, that's not a, like a thing. It's not like the majority of people that go to college go get their PhD. But specifically at Taylor, it's a very rare occurrence. Like it's just not yeah. that common. If someone does go to grad school, it's medical school, which that's kind of its own thing, or it's an MBA. Like going through to yeah. get a PhD is just not a very common occurrence. And I think it is really because like, I think Taylor University is on the good side of it. And by on the good side of it, I mean, still the bad side, but they're on like the a little <laughs> bit better than everyone else side of. Um, there is just a strictly kind of like anti-intellectualism that exists within the evangelical culture. And that was something yeah. that like always was some of my confrontations with like the whole system was we've talked about it a lot over this, but like there's, there's really no room for questioning. And I mean, getting yeah. a PhD is, I mean, that's like the definition of questioning. questioning and Taylor doesn't, doesn't inspire people to go that route. Taylor does not. I mean, that is not the push in your, in your liberal arts degrees, which is a wild thing that they, have programs like history in which they're just like, yeah, go work at a church. And you're like, what? Like, are you like, yeah, be a philosophy major, be a, get a poli sci degree. And then like, maybe go and then to go a to seminary law school, you know? Like, yeah. Yeah. I definitely felt like I was marking some uncharted territory when I started my PhD because like I didn't have any friends outside, like from Taylor yeah. who were also getting their PhDs. Or if I did, they were they were mostly men. Like I, I don't think I had any friends who are women who went on to even like. I only had one good friend who went on to even do graduate school, and she was doing basically like a master's in higher ed type program mm -hmm. in Ohio, and so it was just a very different thing from what I was doing. But I also like again, this is just such a weird dichotomy. I grew up in a family that just really valued education. Yeah. You know, two public school teachers for parents, and then. Mm, Two of my four grandparents were also public school teachers, and my grandmother literally like became estranged from her mom so that she could go to high school, and then mm. she was the first in her family to go to college, and she was, and then she got her nurse doctorate in her sixties when I was like two years old. Yeah. So she it really mattered to my grandmother that I was getting a PhD. I was the first in my family, um, in all of my family on both sides to get a doctoral, like a PhD. And so it was a really big deal to them that I was doing it. Like they really cared about it. And so that was, um, I think a big part of like, they didn't have the support to like 
coach me through graduate school because they didn't really know what I was doing. (laughs) I I think to this day, if I asked my dad to like explain what my doctoral dissertation is about, it would be like he would not be able to do that. (laughs) Um, But they really valued like school Mm. as as an end itself, like that it was important. And they were they were proud of me, even if they didn't understand what I was doing. (laughs) They were still proud of like me doing it. And so whereas Lynn Logan's family, um, all of his siblings and his mom got married before they finished high school. Wow. And so, so when I go there, they're all like, who is this person <laughs> who, who is, who, you know, went to graduate school at 2022 20, was when I started my first year of my doctorate. Yeah. It was a very bizarre experience. Like definitely interesting, but I think like the, going back to the purity culture stuff, like part of what makes purity culture so interesting and like tying it back into the book, but also we can, we should definitely talk about this later is that it's a, there's a, it's, there's a certain expectation of white femininity specifically mm-hmm. because black women are seen as like too promiscuous, too sexual, immodest, you know? So, so when they are looking for an ideal femininity to fit purity culture, they're looking for thin, white, yeah. straight women, yep. I only check one of those boxes. <laughs> um, and uh, and so I think for me on some level, I already intrinsically knew that like I wasn't going to be able to fit that mold. Well, in the, so like In the same sense, the, I mean, the, in order to be a white evangelical, like male model, um, I, I mean, it, it is its own cookie cutter version. Like these are, yeah, there are roles that you basically must abide by or at least be okay with existing in order for the evangelical system to like just continually perpetuate. I mean, like one of the things like my confrontation with my own like gender started in early, early like middle school because I just wasn't as competitive as the people I was like on sports teams with. And my voice is a little bit higher than my friends. And I just don't have that aggressive side to me. Like, in anything other than like ethical conversations like then i'll get like a little <laughs> bit like okay no we gotta actually talk I about relate this. with that <laughs> but uh, from every other standpoint i'm just like a nice i mean just like calm but you that, that's like a beta that's like a beta man bullshit thing yeah, yeah exactly yeah. and that was like that was something that my church tried to like intentionally like i had meetings with my youth pastor about like how to get me to be more macho And I mean, I had to like, this is not a joke. We had as a youth group event, we had to go shoot guns and learn to drive stick shifts as like, here's, here's like what you should be doing as a man. And it's like conversations with a, uh, a 14, 15, 16 year old. When you're not talking about consent, you're not talking about like larger systemic issues. Like, no, it's like, no, learn how to shoot guns. You're from Indiana, right? I am from Indiana. Okay. So that's so interesting because like, so definitely some of the masculinity stuff is still there at the church where I grew up, but because there's really restrictive gun laws in Illinois, a lot of the like go out and shoot like a real man stuff is a lot less (laughs) like there's a, it's a lot more of a like, like white male intellectualism is very much more what I grew Mm. up with. Like, like everybody wanted to read like like gk chester they all wanted in like, illinois they all discuss, wanted to be uh sufyan but then they found out he was gay yeah and then that all just like 
completely dissolved. Yeah, exactly. They wanted to be the creative, quirky, fun, yeah. smart guy. But no. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No yeah. So a lot of the like in, more like intellectual measuring contests, I feel like, uh, where I grew up that this that, that was sort of so no, like, ours was much more ideal. like the farm boy mentality. We had zero farmers at my private school. I want to <laughs> just say that. Like we idealized the farmer, uh, but boy oh boy would they never ever like agree with like any labor rights for farmers like they don't like mm. <laughs> they don't care about yeah. anything to do with it but it's just like this idealized nature which i think is ultimately like this book also jesus or john wayne or jesus and john wayne but a lot of these books they're just talking about these archetypes of the white evangelical christianity it's it's this it's not always expressively this is exactly what you have to be but everything is directed into that ideology like it's it's whether it's over or covert uh intentional or, or not like there is just ultimately like that is where it's all headed and that is it is weird that it is kind of it is not weird but there is really this kind of idea of like the ubermensch of christianity and they won't probably use that terminology they won't use even anything kind of referencing that type of thing but that is that is kind of the purpose of of the institution of evangelicalism but also these institutions that we went to, this Taylor University and, and a lot of the evangelical schools exist in order to perpetuate and to produce these types of people. There's a lot of discussion right now of like Christian nationalism as mm-hmm. like a very, I don't want to say trendy, but like it's definitely, um, there's a lot of workshops about it. I see like all the people I follow like hashtagging about it sometimes and stuff. And part of the reason I like this book better than some of the other stuff talking about Christian nationalism is, isn't because Christian nationalism is an inaccurate term. I do think it's nationalistic, but I think that the term Christian nationalism itself obscures either intentionally or not, um, the racial heart of the ideology. It's, it's white supremacist nationalism. Mm And I think some people have taken to to doing white Christian nationalism, which I think is helpful. But we're not looking at something brand new. We're looking at like a more evolved version of it, maybe yep. like a 3.0 um, as opposed to 1.0 no, or 2.0. In the same way that but it's we, the same thing. We have these larger conversations, cultural conversations about the rise of fascism within the United States. And it's very much like from a historical lens it's very hard to line up yeah. the fascism that we are experiencing now with World War II fascism. But in the same sense, it's just, it's that 2.0. It's 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 a, a thing that has changed and morphed over time because the old thing has died and this new thing has to exist in some way. And I think like the yeah. the Christian nationalism is, is the same. There was this Christian nationalism throughout uh, American history. I mean, in terms of the Civil War, it existed. It existed in the 20s. It existed in the 50s. It existed in definitely the 60s, which is a little bit of focus in the book. But it it exists. It's just it's had to change over time. And so I think what people want when talking about these types of topics, like the Christian nationalist or fascist movements, they want it to just be like everything is historically equal like it's just one-to-one representations and it's like no but if we're having conversations if we're thinking about these things critically we can view the past in a very complex way but also do not be completely 
hindered in having conversations about what is existing today and how how it's changed in ways that the larger culture understands like within Christianity is like Christianity is absolutely a political movement. That seems to be something that is widely agreed upon. Like outside of, you know, I think there's some people that would have some resistance about Catholicism and politics, but the evangelical church, there's not a person out there that's going to disagree with their uh, just fervor for Republican politics. But when we talk about nationalists specifically or about the like the racist or how racism plays a role in the church, the conversations suddenly become a little bit more muddled because it's obvious when you like really think about them and talk to other people about them. But when you just say them broadly, I think people kind of miss sometimes miss the point. And I think that's where this book does such a great job of being so concise about it and so direct that it's just, yes, it exists. Like, I know we can't see it in the same ways that we saw it throughout history, but like it exists, it's here. And when you look at it and and think a little bit deeper about it, you'll see it's alive and well. And it it never died off. It's just changed forms. Part of my concerns with um, the Christian nationalism stuff has, has a lot to do with the authors of the books who are coining the term. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm actually very familiar with them because one of them is a Baylor grad. <laughs> um, and uh, I think that the risk of the Christian nationalism stuff is that it, it risks um, being inadvertently colorblind. And like, so in particular, they go into the ways that they're measuring Christian nationalism on surveys and stuff. And one of the things they keep finding is that there are there are black people who are scoring high on these Christian nationalism scales. Well, that's because the way they're measuring Christian nationalism is like, do you pray in public? Do mm. you like, whereas, and those are like core tenets of the black church also. Right. Um, the difference is that the black church is not also like reinforcing whiteness. And so mm. like, to me, that's a key factor. That's not, that's not an asterisk. That's like, that's like the heart of it. With all that other stuff without whiteness, it might still be like a nationalistic thing we should be worried about, but it's not, it's not the phenomenon we're seeing right now. Like what we're seeing right now is at its core about whiteness. So, so black people can't contribute to nationalism in the same way because they are not perceived as real Americans in, in a, a, in a white supremacist American sense. And so their desire to integrate religion into their everyday lives is something different entirely, which is interesting and something we should look at, but it's not nationalism because in America to be nationalistic is, is inherently part of being white. It is a, it is a white goal in and of itself. So part of my concerns with that Christian nationalism as a concept is that it appears at least on the label to be colorblind, Mm -hmm. but those things are fundamentally not colorblind in the American consciousness. It's fascinating. We're going to kind of have to wrap up here, but I'm sure we will have you back on to talk about even more topics in this general thing, because the one thing we can do, both of us, is talk about this endlessly. I mean, this is... (laughs) So true. We are prepared. Um, Obviously, we both recommend this book fervently. Yes, absolutely. Um, I do want to know, kind of, if there's any other books in this genre that you would also recommend, or... Even if you just want to throw out just some of the stuff you've been reading recently that has nothing to do with this topic at all, kind of just I want to know some some books you've really been enjoying and uh, things you would shout out to the audience so that they can check out some more of your reading. 
Okay, so first, just books like in this genre that I've really enjoyed. I would say another like classic is Jamar Tisby's Color of Compromise. It's very similar to this book, but one thing that it it doesn't that it does that this book doesn't do if people are interested is it goes a lot more into the like civil war, like early pre-20th century stuff, which I think is also really helpful and important. Like basically talking about how the Southern Baptist Convention was founded on segregation and like how the Southern Baptist Convention basically became modern evangelicalism in a lot of ways. Like it's the framework that evangelicalism is evolving from and so understanding the history of the southern baptist convention helps explain a lot of the even the 20th century stuff as well as the 21st century stuff so that's definitely a great book i spend a lot more time reading like black feminist and womanist thought on this topic because so not so much about racism but more about like okay you've deconstructed your your race your internal racist stuff like now what what are you reconstructing with so like black feminist thought by patricia hill collins is phenomenal i love all of dr will gaffney's work but i really love womanist midrash if people are particularly interested in um, black feminist and womanist interpretations of the old testament she's an old testament scholar I've also just been reading a lot of fiction lately. I know. I was, but, uh, I was waiting to see what, what's like. What's the like a couple favorite fiction books that you've read recently? Because it's okay. been a lot. I, that's the one thing I've noticed from Instagram is you've <laughs> yeah. been consuming so, some stuff recently. So now that so it's so funny because somebody else also commented on that, and I was like, well. I was doing a lot of reading for my dissertation, so it's not a lot more reading. It's just different, just different. reading. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Um, now that I have all this bandwidth <laughs> that I'm not spending, um, what am I gonna gonna do? I'm gonna read a shit ton of books. Is what I'm gonna do. Almost an embarrassing amount of books because people read that, like, look at how many books and are like, "Are you doing any work? Like, <laughs> do you do you do your job?" And I'm like, "I do, I do. I swear, <laughs> I just read a lot at night." I just read, and I saw you just read this too, A Happy Place by Emily Henry. I just picked it up. I haven't started it yet, but I, I'm going to soon. I'm very excited for it. I'm like 75% of the way through. I love Emily Henry's work. Mm-hmm. She's great. I re- I read Pet by... Um, I do, just read I do not want to butcher their name. Okay. A quick amazing. Incredible book. So good. Yeah, thank you. Phenomenal book and really, I think, dealing with like abolition in a way that is so interesting. Like we never really think about like a post-abolition world. And this book is really wrestling with that in a way that I think is so insightful. A nonfiction book that I would recommend that I think you would really like is um, Sexual Citizens by Jennifer Hirsch and I forgot, it's two authors. And basically they're talking about the social structures that enable rape and sexual violence on college campuses. Wow. So basically treating... You know, up until now as a society, we've often treated sexual violence in college as a, like, individual you know, individual teenage boys having more freedom and exploring sex and not understanding these cues, which they do talk about that. But they're t- they're particularly interested in this idea that um, geography, social location, structures of universities are playing a big role in how sexual violence takes place. And it really challenged some of the things I previously believed about sexual violence. What's, what's that title again? Because I am I'm gonna I'm gonna have to like purchase right after we finish recording. Yeah, it. Sexual Citizens sexual by citizens. Jennifer. Hirsch. It's they do a lot of 
qualitative interviews. And one of the things that really blew my mind is they interviewed boys who believed that they had assaulted somebody else. Mm-hmm. And they interviewed them about how it happened and like why they think it wow. happened. And it's really profound. I've never, I've rarely ever seen that perspective portrayed. I, I have seen some criticism of the book that it's too empath- like too sympathetic of teenage boys. Mm-hmm. But I think that like one of the things we don't wrestle with as a society is that this 18 legal adult number is a little bit arbitrary. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes. And um and so to be a 19-year-old and you know and to see a pattern of sexual violence that's so prominent right at like 18 and 19 is a community social issue. Mm-hmm. It's not these individual it's not just these individual teenagers in the same way that like we wouldn't think of 14-year-olds committing sexual violence as happening in a vacuum. Like yeah. it's not just oh these parents taught their kid badly. It's a community failed them and failed both the the victim and the perpetrator in that context. Mm-hmm. A, a 14-year-old doesn't act in a vacuum. So how do we think about sexual violence in a really um, community-oriented way as, as a community problem-solving unit? And they, I think, really take that on in a way that I really liked um, and was also really challenged by. So, And they account for a lot of things we don't talk about, like sexual orientation and gender identity. And they talk about how these things, how oftentimes um, queer college students are more likely to say they've been assaulted in part because um, bisexual college students are more likely to be victims of assault, but also because they're more likely to have done the research to have language to talk about their experiences mm. and more likely to know that they've been assaulted. That's fascinating. So like straight girls in comparison are less likely to have that language because they've not done the research yeah. around sexual identity and orientation and all these things. And so... And so it's really interesting the way that they take... I just thought it was so brilliant. All right, everyone. We'll see you back here in a couple weeks to talk about sexual (laughs) citizens. I will come and talk about (laughs) sexual citizens with you (laughs) happily. Well, Hannah, um, people, if they want more of your readings, where can they find you online? Yeah. So my only public account now is Dr. Evans Reads on Instagram. I'm not on Twitter anymore. I'm really sorry. Um, and my personal Instagram is private because just to protect my daughter and her privacy. Sure. Um, I'm also on Substack. Uh, you can find you can find Hannah uninterrupted on Substack. And I also do a newsletter called Pop Culture Pen Pals with my good friend Kelsey. Um, we're currently on hiatus right now because I was working on my dissertation. But we are planning a comeback soon. Nice. So uh, if people are interested in the pop culture discourse stuff, and and I do talk a lot about racism and sexism (laughs) and homophobia and ableism and all that stuff on my news on that newsletter, too, when we talk about pop culture. So, well, we'll be linking all of Dr. Hannah Evans stuff in the show notes. Um, And thank you so much, Hannah, for coming on the podcast. I, I really enjoyed this. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. This podcast is edited by Tone Support. If you would like more information, please check out tone.support. This podcast is supported by my patrons on Patreon, Aaliyah S., Elizabeth F., and Marilyn V. If you would like to help support this podcast and hear future premium episodes, you can do so at patreon.com slash schizoreads. Thank you so much, everyone, and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.